Welcome to the Enchanted Ears Podcast, where we discuss anything and everything Disney. I'm Angela. And I'm Joe. And on today's episode, we're going to be diving into the history of Pixar. It is Toy Story's 25th anniversary, so kind of the main feature that kicked everything off for Pixar, but there's actually a lot of history that got them to Toy Story. And so we thought it'd be interesting to kind of talk about that, because I think it's not very well known as mm-hmm. much as their kind of more current history and, and movie success is. So thought it'd be a good good day to dive into that with the 25th anniversary of Toy Story here. Yeah. But before we get into that, I want to go through some Disney news. Some pretty big Disney news uh, came out this past week. So um, a, a lot of the news uh, came out earlier in the week. So Disney Parks chairman Josh DeMauro was at the IAPA conference. So that is kind of an industry conference for theme parks and attractions. And he was talking about a lot of the new things coming to Disneyland and Disney World. So we got our first look inside the Star Wars Hotel. So we got mm. to see some of the rooms in there. Looks exactly like the concept art. Oh my gosh, yeah. And I kind of wonder, is that just one room that they have done or do they have a lot more rooms done? I mean, typically when you build hotels, you kind of do a mock-up. And I kind of wonder, is that just the mock-up I was going to say, I feel like this has to be like homes. You know, like you have like a model home. I feel like they they built that one first so that they had something to show and then they can use that as the model to kind of do every other one. Right, because the the talk still is, I mean, and I think all the press release material is that it's going to open in 2021. They've said reservations are going to start before the end of the year. The end of the year is rapidly approaching, so I think that may slip. But yeah, they at least have one room done. It, you know, it looks pretty cool. Still have no idea on pricing, so we'll have to see about that. Uh, kind of speaking of stuff slipping, you know, Ratatouille, I think he mentioned that it's on track to open in 2021, which it was always scheduled for 2020. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like it won't be opening until at least the beginning of next year. So that is late. But now they're trying to, I think, spin it a little bit like, hey, this was the plan. <laughs> all along. No, no, this is what we wanted the whole time. Yeah, but but the outside, I, I could see them opening the area, the kind of courtyard early because they have the sign up for the attraction. And I think with holiday crowds, that may be a nice place just to open up and have people walk through that courtyard, just get people kind of exploring it, give people a little bit more room to kind of spread out in. But it sounds like the ride may not be opening. We also got uh, an inside look at Guardians of the Galaxy. It just kind of some of the track in there, the Space 220 restaurant, those screens that will make it look like you are floating above Earth. Um, so just a few pictures on that. Also got a very short video of the new Spider-Man well, web slinger attraction that's coming into Disneyland. And it's kind of, I was actually kind of interested to see what those cars looked like because it, it was described as like a Toy Story Mania type ride where you'll be kind of shooting webs to catch spiders but the cars look like they're completely enclosed so it's not like the toy story mania cars it's hard to tell from the video but it almost looks like they may be enclosed with a like a glass windshield in front and i wonder if they're going to be using that as some sort of like screen or projection mapping technology to make that to make it look like you're actually shooting a web because all the concept art makes it look like you're shooting a web out of your hand like Spider-Man. And mm. I think that's very hard to do. But if you have some sort of screen in front of you, uh, you know, that can pick up whenever you make that motion, it's, I think it would be easier to kind of make it look like, oh, there's actually web flying out of my hands to catch one of these spiders. Hmm. And you're catching spiders? 
Yeah. Spider-Man is catching spiders? Yeah, the whole conceit of the ride is that Peter creates these robotic spiders to uh-huh. kind of help him. And then they, you know, obviously something goes wrong or whatever, and they kind of get out of control, and they're running around the lab everywhere and around the city. And so you have to help him kind of round them up before they uh, kind of wreak havoc. Hmm. And I think they're going to sell them. I think they're going to be... Like you'll be able to buy them as a toy afterwards too, like a like kind of like the Banshees, you know, something that's like a little robotic spider that sits on your shoulder. Yeah, I'm interested to see what they do here because I I always say that spiders need some better PR. They need a better PR manager. So this could go either way. Who better than Spider Man to be their <laughs> PR manager? Yeah, because they're pretty they're pretty helpful little guys. And the other big piece of news is that park hopping is coming back January 1st to Disney World. Disney has been selling park hopping tickets for anybody buying tickets in 2021, but nobody was sure is it really going to happen or are they going to cancel it? And it, it looks like, no, park hopping is going to be coming back in 2021. I have a lot of questions about this. The kind of press release on how this is going to work is somewhat vague. Basically, what it says is you still have to make a park pass reservation for whatever park you want to go to. And then you have to enter that park on that day. But then... At 2 p.m. every day, you can leave and go to another park, assuming there is capacity. Now, you, do, you don't have to make a reservation for the second park. I think my question kind of comes around, where's the capacity coming from? Because my fear would be, I'm in the Magic Kingdom, I leave and I want to go to Epcot, and then Epcot's full and I come back to Magic Kingdom, and so many people have parked top. They say, oh, Epcot's at, or Magic Kingdom's at capacity now, and I can't get back in. So I, I don't think they're going to allow that, obviously, because they don't want to... If you make a park pass reservation, you have to be able to get in the park. So I think either this is going to come from you know, a little bit of added capacity, and maybe they won't sell every reservation, or you know, a lot of the parks aren't selling out all their reservations anyways. And so you know, if they have 3,000 unused reservations that day that's going to be the park hopper capacity for the day Um, because they definitely can't say oh 2,000 people have left let's let all those people come and park hop and then you come back later in the day and not be able to get in yeah it's going to definitely be interesting to figure out how they're going to make this work I would really like to see some sort of um, you know an app ability for you to see before you leave a park what parks have available capacity and that way you don't travel there waste your time because you know sometimes it could take 20 30 minutes to get from park to park depending on the lines and then also the buses don't have probably full capacity right now either so it's going to take a little extra time and then it's going to cause people to be irritable if they get to a park and then find out they can't get in and they did kind of mention that that the park hours for park hopping and everything will be available in the my disney experience so i think it will kind of be listed which parks have capacity that day but again i mean what is the capacity if it's a few thousand people you know if you look at two and go okay epcot's available but maybe it takes you an hour to get there because you're in the middle of a ride maybe two thousand people have come in and then it's full so i i do still think there is some of that to work out i definitely don't think it's kind of like old school park hopping where you can plan to make dining reservations in different parks each day Mm. um because to kind of your point you know if you're going to animal kingdom in the morning i wouldn't make a reservation for someplace in epcot because what if it's full and then you can't get in you can't get to that dining reservation i do think this maybe 
kind of leads to the nighttime shows coming back because, you know, especially like with Epcot and their new show, I think a lot of people would want to park hop, you know, go to a different park in the morning and then head over to Epcot in the evening, either for one of the festivals or for like the nighttime show. So I, I think, you know, this is probably a good sign for some more of that kind of stuff coming back. Um, just because that's when, you know, park hopping makes more sense. But yeah, I wouldn't make any concrete plans for that second park of the day just because I, I feel like we're going to get there. Yeah. And I feel like it's going to be really limited on how many people they're going to be letting in park hopping because they're still capping it at, you know, 25, 35% type thing. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's get into our main topic. So again, we're talking about the history of Pixar. So Pixar, I think, as we all know it today, 22 movies. Uh, over $14 billion at the box office. Pretty much every movie, I think maybe minus one or two of them, have opened number one at the box office. They've won 16 combined Academy Awards. Um, we all know Disney bought them in 2006 for $7.4 billion. So, you, you know, they are a major movie studio, extremely successful. So they've made their money back double with the box. Yes. Well, I guess Disney didn't own them that whole time. Yeah, Disney didn't own that whole time, but yes. I mean they they've definitely made their money back in merchandise and everything. Oh, so yeah. they are they are a behemoth that we know them today, but really I think what a lot of people don't know is that they started off very differently as a, as a drastically different company with a drastically different trajectory that if a few things didn't go their way in their history. They wouldn't be this very successful movie studio they are today. So with this being the 25th anniversary of Toy Story, so Toy Story was released on November 22nd, 1995. Oh, oh we're recording on November 22nd. This is the exact yes, day. This is the exact oh, day. So. How about that? So I thought it, <laughs> thought it would be interesting to kind of talk through a little bit about that history from their beginnings leading up to Toy Story because I think it's a, something that a lot of people really don't know about. It's also interesting just to see how many interesting and high level high level I guess people have had their hands in Pixar. It really is. They were kind of destined to do something good but it just didn't it, they became something almost other than what they seemed like they could have been. Yeah and I think a lot of people have assumed they've always been a part of Disney because every movie they've released has been released with Disney and it's always said Disney Pixar. And that was actually one of the things uh, Steve Jobs and we'll get to Steve Jobs involvement, but he really pushed for that, that Pixar's name be as big as Disney's name on all the marketing. So that that way it would build Pixar's brand as well. So, and they've always been part of the parks and everything. And so I, I do think, it's very easy from the outside to look and say, Oh, they've just, they've been a part of Disney. You know, they've always worked with Disney. They've always been this really successful studio, but when they started out, they did not start out wanting to make movies. I mean, that, that wasn't even their goal. Yes. Yes. This is kind of fascinating. So yeah. Pixar, it wasn't called Pixar, but the idea for it started in 1979 and it was actually started by George Lucas. And if you think about this, so they've basically been on a collision course with Disney this whole time. Cause I mean, obviously, Disney eventually acquired Lucasfilm as well. Correct. You know, Pixar's history is actually interesting in the way it mirrors kind of other historical events and figures. Because to your point, I mean, the people that have been involved in Pixar were people that were kind of involved in that time period in history as well. So like George Lucas is starting out. But it's also very interesting on how it followed almost Walt's trajectory building Disney animation. And I think 
those two parallels kind of go to show why Pixar ultimately is as successful as it is because it does mirror Walt's history with building Disney. And we'll, we'll kind of talk to those points. But so, so George Lucas started, and I, I don't think that's really a surprise if you think about it because in the 70s, Star Wars was all about special effects and George really pioneered a lot of special effects in movies. But a lot of it was done practically. And he wanted to utilize computers and computer animation to build special effects because he, right. he was always kind of on the cutting edge of that. So George actually um, reached out and he hired Ed Catmull from New York Institute of Technology. So he was actually uh, a, a researcher there. He was developing a state-of-the-art computer technology. He actually wrote like a doctoral dissertation about like curved lines, how to make a curved line on a computer. Ooh. Like that's what his dissertation was about. Um, and I believe Alvy Ray Smith was also working with Ed at the New York Institute of Technology as well. So, so basically, these were computer scientists. They were not animators. They were not movie makers. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were just all about how to draw lines on a computer. I mean, that, that's what computer animation was back in the day. It's just like, how can you draw a curved line? That was something that just blew people's minds. He brought them on, and they started the Lucasfilm Computer Division, and they, they were starting to create these special effects. One of their first actual sequences they did was in 1982. They did the Genesis effect for Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. So they weren't just doing you know Lucasfilm or Disney movies at the time. But this was the scene where they show a lifeless planet being rapidly transformed by vegetation. And it was actually the first completely computer animated sequence in a feature film. Hmm. Interesting. In 1984, then they hired John Lasseter full-time as an interface designer. That sounds fancy. Yeah, and I, and I think this is where, you know, kind of one of the key inflection points is. So, again, they're in the 70s, early 80s. They're part of Lucasfilm. It's really all about creating this technology to animate things for movies, and it was it was about building the computers and the software to sell to people to use. And they brought John Lasseter on, and he actually was an animator at Disney. He trained at CalArts. He was taught by three members of the Nine Old Men. And also, and some of his classmates um, are crazy. So Tim Burton, Brad Bird, <laughs> Chris Buck, I mean, other legendary animators at the time. But he worked at Disney, and he actually was very early on this computer animation trend. He saw them working on Tron and kind of saw that as the future for animation. And Disney didn't really care for that, so he ended up getting fired. And so that's why he moved to Pixar. But he was really the one... He, he liked making movies. I mean, he was trained by, from the nine old men. He wanted to be an animator. He was all about storytelling. I mean, he even worked at Disneyland on the Jungle Cruise when he was at CalArts. And so... You know, John Lasseter really had that kind of, you know, spirit of Walt, uh, of, of making these, you know, emotional movies that you know, he realized it was about the character, about the character development. And once John came on, he started using the technology to create short films and things. Yeah. So then the first short comes out called The Adventures of Andre and Wally B. Uh, I watched this. They're They're all up on... YouTube, like all the ones that we were were gonna mention, they're up on YouTube. So if you have an interest in watching them, definitely go check it out. Uh, it's it's very it's very cool to see, you know, how basic it is and how much they're able to grow 
in the these first few years, um, from one movie to the next, even uh, just how how much they leap forward in technology. Um, the storyline though is still there, and it still has like a little like a heart to it, and it's still fun. Um, so I think that yeah, it's it's interesting to see. And that's really what the key to it was is, you know, they realized. You know, they could make some graphics, but yeah, it's not going to blow you away on the graphics that it really was about the heart of the story. And that's really where kind of the beginning of, of Pixar comes from that, you know, they realize it's about the emotion of the characters. And, and again, they're just, they're just making these shorts to test out the technology. And this is one of the things where I said it kind of parallels Disney. So, you know, again, it's a bunch of these computer scientists just trying to make pixels on a screen work. And, you know, then you have John Lasseter come in and he realizes, hey, I can use this to tell a story. I can use this to make a short film. Let me see what this technology can do. Let me try things out. And it was kind of the same way that Walt started just making shorts, but he was always pushing the medium, inventing the multiplane camera, using Technicolor, using surround sound, always trying different things to push the medium that ultimately led up to a fully animated feature film, which is kind of what Pixar did. They did a lot of shorts. They did a lot of testing, which then ultimately led up to Toy Story, which is still, you know, 10 years away at this point. I do think it's really interesting. And you'll see this theme throughout as we're talking about this, how Pixar really has built into its DNA, this, um, you know, trying the, the medium, trying to see what they can do. I mean, we, we know now that Pixar uses the shorts to try to see, what they can do and they don't necessarily put it straight into a movie, but they're just trying out different technologies. How can we animate water and things like that? And that started back and it started all the way yeah, back in the eighties. In the eighties. It's 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 really mind blowing that they've kind of kept that same mission um, you know, going. Exactly. And so they were working, they were working on selling the software, creating this technology, and by the mid eighties uh, George Lucas was actually going through a divorce. And so he needed to raise some money and cut some costs. So that's ultimately why he w wanted to sell Pixar. So, you know, you may think, well, if George Lucas had this, why would he even sell Pixar in the first place? Or Do you think he ever kicked himself for this decision? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, Lucasfilm ended up selling for yeah. $4 billion. Yeah. He, you know, he made a lot of money. I guess he's not missing it. Yeah. So, <laughs> So he was looking to, to kind of cut costs. I think he originally wanted like $30 million for Pixar, which even that seems like a steal, um, but nobody wanted it. So it was in like a, a real potential of folding and, and not going anywhere. But Steve Jobs, and so again, just another like big name, like yeah, you said. Titan. It's like it's like the Midas touch. I don't know. It's like I was, I've been trying to think of this. Like multiple people that have like the Midas touch have, have had something to do with Pixar. Yeah, so he actually bought them for $5 million, which is like nothing. So he paid $5 million for Pixar in 1986. And this is actually when they uh, became renamed Pixar. Yeah. So I found this part absolutely fascinating. So there's a couple co-founders, Alvy Ray Smith and Lauren Carpenter. And they had this interest in, um, you know, like Spanish. Uh, so if you think about Spanish, if you know any Spanish, your English nouns, a couple of them sound like Spanish verbs. So Spanish verbs always end in AR, ER, or IR. So they um, they kind of liked how some English words had that 
A-R-E-R or I-R ending. And so they decided they were going to create a new noun and make it kind of sound like one of these verbs. So they took, they made up the name Pixar and it made it to mean to make pictures, but then they combined it with the word radar. And so they got Pixar out of that. And I mean, just, um, I don't know. I just think it's really interesting how they mashed up those words together to sort of make their own new word, uh, you know, kind of like Shakespeare used to do. So yeah. And it's, it's a really good name. I mean, it's perfect for being tech and having to do with pixels and things like that. So. Yeah. It, it works on a lot of levels and, and it really is interesting. I mean, you could think, I mean, I, I thought it was like uh, an acronym for something, you know, like each letter stood for something or, like to you say, like something with pixels type thing. Mm. Um, but yeah, that is, that is an interesting kind of thought process. So they ended up renaming themselves Pixar. And again, you know, Steve Jobs paid $5 million for them. And then in 2006, sold them to Disney for $7.4 billion. I want to make an investment like that. I know. And he actually, <laughs> and at that point, he became the largest shareholder in Disney um, because of that. I'm not sure if his wife um, still is the largest shareholder because obviously she owns all that now I, I don't know if, if you know if if she's still a large shareholder but she's def- definitely um you know a large shareholder in it but but so steve bought them you know again he was kind of in this tech space i also think this was around the time he got ousted from apple and so he was kind of oh, looking yeah. for something else to do he was starting the next computer system that's what it was called next it wasn't the next computer it was actually called next um that was his company he created after apple but he he was looking for something else to do so you know he bought he bought pixar and what is interesting about this and and this has been told in kind of the steve jobs biography by ed catmill and and even in in ed's book creativity inc was you know steve jobs kind of had this reputation for kind of being tough to work with abrasive is maybe a good word for it but the the guys over at pixar their team really seemed to like him. He seemed he 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 really let them um, kind of run with it on the creativity side. Like he he was kind of their business guy, and he did a lot of the deals with Disney and made sure you know things worked out well for them. But he was pretty hands off when it ter- when it came to letting them make the movies and make the creative decisions, which is kind of interesting. That I think that kind of goes to show you that Steve knew when he had to be abrasive, you know, when he knew something about, you know, product design, what a consumer wanted, you know, he was very passionate about it. But I think he also understood as I think a lot of great, you know, business leaders and things do when they're maybe not the expert on it to kind of let those guys handle it. And and he was a little bit more hands off on it. And I think that helped them be successful as well. He kind of gave them the room to breathe and he, and he funded them, I think a lot when, they really weren't making money and they really, you know, they really weren't doing too much. Um, and I think that just kind of goes to show, you know, how great he really was at, at kind of handling multiple businesses. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, it just, it goes to show too how, you know, sometimes you just need different kind of bosses to do different kinds of things. So he made, when he wasn't maybe working out for Apple and I don't know the full story there. I know you've read the biography. I haven't, but you know, but it was working for what he was doing over at Pixar. Right. And then this is when Pixar uh, they actually started working with Disney at this time as well. And they collaborated with them to make their cap system. And this is kind of like this. And then render man is kind of like the backbone of Pixar. It sounds like the, the cheap uh, brother of Slenderman. Slenderman. Yeah. <laughs> Renderman. It does. 
not nearly as scary. He didn't do so well. Yeah, he's actually very friendly. He makes all the movies that you know and love today. So, <laughs> so CAP stands for Computer Animation Production System. And what this was is, again, they're essentially a software company. And it was digitizing the ink and paint system. So, you know, typical hand-drawn animation, somebody had to physically color that stuff in, whereas this CAP system was able to take the drawings and digitize it and make it and, and digitize the ink and paint. So the first usage of this was uh, Mickey standing on Epcot's Spaceship Earth for the Magical World of Disney titles. There was one scene used in The Little Mermaid towards the end of the scene, and then The Rescuers Down Under, which we talked about uh, in our Renaissance. We talked about The Little Mermaid too, but our, our Renaissance review. But The Rescuers Down Under was the first 100% digital feature film ever produced. And then they continued to use uh, Caps' 2D and 3D technology on Beauty and the Beast, The Lion King, Hunchback. And Disney was very hesitant to tell people they were using this. Like they kind of kept this a secret because they felt that if people realized computers were involved in painting these cells and things that people would think oh, the magic's gone. Oh, Disney selling out type thing. So they actually kept it like kind of quiet. They didn't want a lot of people to know that they were using this, but you know, digital technology was used all the way back to again, as early as uh, for one scene in the little mermaid. So also in that same year, they had a uh, so this is kind of going back to the year. This is 1986. Yeah, still. 1986. So this is when they came out with Luxo Junior short, the Luxo Junior short, and I never knew in the Pixar logo of today. I never knew where the lamp and the ball came from, and this is where it comes from. It's this really cute. Uh, it, seriously, go watch it if you've never seen it before. It's really cute short where you have it's almost like a father and son lamp and they're playing with this ball and then they end like the son ends up smushing the ball and knocking all the air out of it but it is just absolutely it's adorable and it's it's an interesting kind of you can start to see where toy story came from because they're able to anthropomorphize these lamps and make them like give them the all these human qualities and make you like them and it's it's amazing. They don't have faces, nothing. And this is this is going to turn into a little bit of a TED Talk entrepreneurial lesson here, but <laughs> it, this is just goes to show you how sometimes constraints bring out more creativity. And so, you know, a lot of people if they're trying to start a business or a side hustle or something today, it's like I need to have all the resources, you know, like if I don't have the resources, I'm going to fail. And it, they're always focused on what they kind of don't have. Mm -hmm. And really, you know, if you're, especially if you're doing something creative, like writing a book or, you know, a screenplay or something, it's all about the constraint actually almost helps you by, by writing yourself into a box or limiting what you can do. You have to find creativity in other ways to succeed. And this just kind of goes to show you, like, to your point, they had to take a ball and a lamp because they couldn't make faces well. We'll talk about the oh, tin, we'll talk about tin tin toy uh, story here in a minute, but they couldn't do faces well. I mean, they, they could do oh, very man. simple objects, so they couldn't make a traditional movie completely computer animated because they couldn't have people in it. So they had to, like you're saying, give human qualities to these inanimate objects, and they had to figure out how can I make them move to show expression. It's kind of like what they have to do with the Mandalorian. Like it's a, it's a mate. We've talked about that. It's amazing how you can get expressions from Mando when you can't see his face. Yeah. And Pixar, 
does this so well. And it goes back to these shorts of like, they had to learn how to do that. They didn't, they didn't necessarily do that because they wanted to, they do that. They did that because they had to, but it made them better for it. And so it's sometimes don't look at your constraints as a disadvantage. Look at those as an advantage and, and you could come out better for it in the end. Also, I mean, possibility talk over. (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm kind of wrapping up here, but think about, you know, trying to, trying to make a decision on if you're going to order dinner out and, you know, you and your family trying to talk that out and, well, we have this place and this place and this place. And it seems overwhelming. So sometimes when you have those limited constraints, it actually, you know, helps to free you up and you realize, okay, well, if we're only going to get you know, Indian food. There's two Indian food places. Where do you prefer? Counterpoint, just go to Epcot, eat around the world. Everybody has everything they want. One final thing about Luxo Jr. It became the first three-dimensional computer computer animated film to be nominated for an Oscar. And then also, uh, so it got that uh, nom for the best short film. It was recognized as well as being really awesome. Yeah, basically everything Pixar did was nominated for awards at the beginning. Part of it was the novelty. I mean, the novelty of just seeing computer animation. But part of it goes to your point of how well they did of putting emotion into it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if somebody would have just put a, a lamp on a screen and a ball bouncing around, it wouldn't have won an award. But the mm-hmm. fact that it, they had a story into it that you could pick up is really what did it. And so a few years later in 88, they come out with their RenderMan, like we talked about, their RenderMan software. So this is actually the software that Pixar designed. It's still used today. You can actually buy it. I mean, a lot of movie studios use this. This is what Pixar uses to render all their movies. I'm sure Disney Animation uses it. I'm sure there's a lot of other animation studios that use RenderMan. I mean, this is just a kind of professional digital rendering software. I wonder how much it costs. Yeah, I don't know. I went on their website and it says like for commercial use, see them for a quote. So, I mean, it's, oh, it's going to be a lot then. Yeah, that that enterprise software is always a lot. Depends on number of users and stuff like that. But but this is a software, you know, out there that, that people use. So this is when they created uh, Tin Toy uh, Shorts. So and this was actually kind of the precursor to Toy Story. I could not wait. This was the thing about this episode that I was most excited to talk about. This story, you know, builds up same same way as Toy Story, where you have a toy who is alive and is then trying to interact with this baby. Wow, this baby. Oh, <laughs> my gosh. I, you know, I, we've been talking about like how Pixar for a long time could not do human faces and i didn't realize that they had until i watched this they attempted to this baby is i unreal it's scary it is scary you know i feel like i've used the word nightmare fuel on the podcast many times i think that this this is true nightmare fuel there's not a lot of detail to it i mean it it's Mm. very like it's very like flat and shiny like there's just not the texturing and shadowing and things that that kind of make it so it looks like very yeah it like looks fake. hardened. I mean the baby looks like a toy. I mean he looks like a toy. It's it's kind of like a, a plastic a toy that you would throw in the back of your toy box and he never play looks, with. He kind of looks like the baby um from that Sid had in Toy Story. Kind of that like you know Frankenstein put together baby, but not not even that good a quality. Yeah, no. I mean, not it, even, it, looked, not it even looks a like little. a baby doll. But but this really was the precursor to Toy Story. They actually had the idea for this, and whenever they came up with the idea for Toy Story, 
they in, in part of the negotiations with Disney, they kind of pitched Disney on making this tin toy as like a half hour short for TV, just uh-huh. to kind of prove that they could could do could do it. Disney ultimately passed on it and they released it. But the idea for Toy Story originally was that Tinny from Tin Toy would be the main character, and he would be um, paired up with Woody instead of Buzz Lightyear. Huh. That's interesting. I mean, he doesn't talk I don't at all in the film. And basically the whole thing is he's trying to avoid the baby because the baby's crushing and killing the toys, kind of like Sid. It's almost like they took Sid, aged him or that baby and aged him up and made him kind of like that. It's a very similar character. Theory, 1988 to 1995, it could be Sid. Oh my goodness. I mean, that's 7 years. Well, the tin toy does eventually kind of make friends with the with the, the baby, but you know, maybe maybe that is Sid. Maybe I mean, it I was, is. Sid's probably like eight or so. I, I think I think the timeline maybe works out. Hey, that's just a theory, an enchanted ears theory. <laughs> so so leading up to Toy Story, so they actually announced Toy Story in 1991. It did not get released until 1995, and there was actually a lot of behind the scenes conflict on this movie. I mean, it was it was touch and go for a while. I mean, it, it almost got canceled. I mean, Toy Story almost didn't get released. And again, this just kind of goes to show back a, a decade, if, if John Lasser did not join Pixar, I don't think you, you would not have had all the shorts. You would not have had this kind of drive to create a movie. And on the way, too, besides the shorts, they use commercials to help practice and hone their skill. I mean, they made commercials for, I think it was Trident. They made The first one they made was for Tropicana. So they had all these commercials, too, that they were using to work on their skills. Yeah, and, and part of it, I mean, it, it was kind of twofold. One was they needed money. So, I mean, oh, yeah. Steve Jobs bought them. They really weren't making a, a lot of money, and so that's why they were making these shorts, and that's why they wanted to make a feature film as well. But two, I mean, they started out as a software company, but what better way to get people to buy your software than to demonstrate to how well it, it works. Do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So by making these shorts, it was almost their sales pitch. Um, it was kind of like their portfolio. And, and, and again, just kind of how Disney started with shorts, how Walt started with shorts and then said, okay, I want to make the first animated feature film, Snow White. It took him, it took him a long time to get to that point in the same way Pixar did. I mean, they did years and years of shorts. They did commercials. They did things to get by. And then they decided the technology is there. You know, the computers are powerful enough now that we can do a full, fully animated, uh, you know, computer animated feature film. And kind of just like Snow White was extremely successful, Toy Story was extremely successful as well and, and launched a, you know, a, a huge company. But Behind the scenes, this was kind of the time of the Disney Renaissance. So Jeffrey Katzenberg was involved at the studio. They really did this because they wanted John Lasseter back. Uh-huh. They because he had the idea for Toy Story, and they wanted to hire him back to make Toy Story at Disney because Disney did not really have outside studios making their movies. Everything was kind of in house, and John felt some loyalty to Steve for giving him a job. And so he said, no, I'm staying with Pixar. And so they said, all right, fine. If, if you're not going to come back to work for us, this is how we're going to make the movie. We're going to make, make a deal with you. But there was just, there was a lot of just like clashing and notes. Jeffrey Katzenberg was, was like changing things to the point that Tom Hanks at one point apparently said that Woody's a jerk. Like he, 
he didn't like Woody, you know, just like the direction he was going from, you know, the original thought. We I already mean, ta- Woody is a jerk, but he is, I mean, he grows. Right. But he was, he was more of kind of like, he was worse. He was like sure. the tyrant that like ruled the toys type thing, yeah. you know? And so it wasn't, and, and he didn't have Buzz Lightyear originally. Again, we had Tinny and then they kind of realized he was kind of an antiquated toy. We need somebody else in here. And so it just, it went through a lot of iterations. So I took four years. I mean, the other thing that didn't help was uh, Peter Schneider, who was the president of Walt Disney feature animation at the time, wasn't really thrilled with the project. He didn't like the idea that an outside studio was going to be making a film for Disney and, and you know he didn't have a lot of control over it. So there was just a whole lot of like, behind the scenes politics and things. And, th- and they did shut down the movie because they went down this path where there wasn't that like lighthearted story there. It wasn't heartwarming. Woody was this jerk. And so they kind of shut down production and luckily Disney allowed Pixar to kind of work on the script and get back to their original heart of the movie and, and change things and-, and get it to the movie that we know today. Yeah. It was almost like they, <laughs> They use uh, the alien claw to rescue it. Ooh, that's my new favorite thing <laughs> <Yeah>. to do. <laughs> and, and so it, it ultimately opened November 22nd, 1995. It opened number one that weekend, and it would go to gross $362 million worldwide, which is a lot for 1995. I think the budget for this was, I think I saw originally the budget was like $17 million. Now it went over that. So like, let's say it, it's double that. So let's say it was $35 million. Yeah. You know, to make 362 million, I mean, it's a, a huge success. I think that's right. why, you know, it's no surprise that Disney kept making movies with them. But it also is one of the rare movies to have a hundred percent rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Wow. So it just kind of goes to show when this you know movie came, again, looking back on it, I mean the animation is still pretty good. I mean, it's definitely improved in the past twenty-five yeah. years, but it's really not bad. I mean, it, it holds up decently well. But I, I I do kind of remember, I mean, we were like what six or so at the time this movie came out i mean it you you did kind of get the sense that this was something i mean it was something you've never seen before and i think i think audience really sensed that and it was this shift to you can animate movies now and it's just it was a novelty but a computer yeah it, it was a novelty i think what drew a lot of people to it but it was a good story and i think that's what people kept coming back to and then you know they followed it up with a bug's life and toy story 2 and it's just snowballed from there it is also just an idea that everyone loves i mean you think about it every child plays with their toys as if they're real they talk to them they want them to be real so the idea for this story where they actually are real whenever you're not around is appealing to both children and adults and then it also has i mean the story itself has you know things in it like jokes for adults so it is really well done I will say that they got lucky that they didn't frighten kids that because I, I could see a lot of kids not wanting their toys to be alive when they're not around and be like, are these toys going to come after me? <laughs> so I think they played it well that the kids were like, oh, I like those characters and didn't think these my toys are going to come to life when I'm asleep. Yeah, I, I, they did. They walked a fine line. There weren't too many like evil toys. It was Sid who was the evil one. Exactly. It was the kid. The, yeah. Even Sid's toys, I think, were kind of more evil because they belonged to Sid, not because they were actually yep, evil. They kept the toys very nice. I mean, it wasn't until like Toy Story 2 and 3 where you get yes, like... when you get the evil toys. Yeah, we get like the prospector and stuff where you know, you get some people with 
like shady motivations. And again, and again, and they weren't doing anything to kids. They right. were doing things to the other toys. Yeah, and so, the prospector was more just because he what was it? He wanted them to sell, and he didn't want kids to play with them because he didn't want to get damaged. Yeah, and and it does. It goes back to these toys want the kids to love them and if anything they're mean to each other and so i think i think that helps too because you're right if they had these toys like terrorizing the kids kids might be frightened they're like stomping on their faces when they're asleep yeah they're like i I don't want toys anymore so i I think they do walk that fine line very well but but yeah so i I think you know from here we kind of all know the trajectory you know we, we all know where pixar is today but again, it's just, it's a fascinating Those history. origins. Yeah, it's crazy. a fascinating history to get us to Toy Story. Yeah. And just one fine f- final fact about Pixar that just, it blew my mind a little bit because I don't think I ever, I don't really pay attention to these little Easter eggs all the time. A113 is in every single one of their movies. And it actually references the class number at CalArts of John Lasseter, Brad Bird, Pete Doctor, and Andrew Stanton. So it is in everything. Like I think it, it's on uh, Mater's license plate. It's on like it's a little the, Easter egg. Yeah, in, in every film. Yeah, so in every single film, it is in there somewhere. So keep your eyes peeled for it next time you watch. Uh, we watch for, Soul. It's gonna, it's yeah. gonna be in Soul. Yeah, exactly. Just freeze, freeze frame it. Watch it in slow mo on Disney Plus on Christmas. Watch the whole thing. How long do I'm you think it would take it. to watch an entire Pixar film on slow motion? Well, let's see. It depends how slow motion you're going. If you're going half speed, it's going to take double. If you're watching quarter speed, it's going to take four times as long. Oh, yeah. So I don't know. Hour and a half movie, watch it at half speed. I'd say about three hours. I think that would be really difficult. We've had a TED Talk today. We've had math class today. Wow. We've had a history lesson today. You are smarter today for listening to this podcast. Very rarely... It's very can we rare. make these claims? It's very rare that we can say you're smarter for listening to this podcast. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't know if the listener is smarter, but I just got smarter. Yeah, I think, I think, I think we all learned something here today. <laughs> all right, but that, but that wraps it up. Again, I think it's just a really interesting story. Uh, hopefully, everybody enjoyed listening to this. Everybody learned something. Because again, today was the episode we wanted to bring a little bit of the education. Most oh, days yes. we don't. Most days we just bring the fun yeah. and silliness. Yes. <laughs> I was trying to think of a funny quip, but nothing came in (laughs) to my mind. All right. want to thank everybody again for listening this week. If you're new here, make sure you subscribe, leave us a rating or a review. Uh, It really helps, really helps uh, grow the audience. And also welcome if you're uh, new here joining. Yeah, it helps us climb the the charts. Yeah. Hopefully everybody has a great Thanksgiving, a safe Thanksgiving. We will be back here next Monday. We really appreciate everybody listening. Thanks for lending us your ears. Have a great week, everyone. Bye-bye.